I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, what can the animal world teach us about gender and biology? And what causes males and females to behave differently? That same gender diversity that we see in human society, we can see that echoed in primate societies. What I find most interesting about it is that the primates have no trouble with it. We are upset by these categories that we create. And if you fall outside of the boxes, um, we don't accept you necessarily. And later, are men and women actually hardwired in different ways? What role does science and culture play in our gender identities? By the time they're three, most children have already identified with a gender, and that becomes a really important crystallizing force for the way that they see the world around them and they think about themselves. Kids have a real hard time thinking in shades of gray. They are pretty concrete. The complicated intersection of biology, science, and culture on our gender identities. That's coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. He, she, or they. These days, the issue of gender identity is both more nuanced and political. Though we're all genetically assigned male or female at birth, when it comes to our sense of self, a person's identity may not match. And the spectrum is large. While some of us don't identify with our assigned sex, other identify with both or with neither. So how does it work in the animal kingdom? What can we learn from animals about gender and biology? Are there specific male and female traits? And are these behaviors learned or genetically hardwired? Primatologist Franz de Waal has spent decades studying animal behavior, in particular in our closest evolutionary cousins, the bonobos and the chimpanzees, who may hold the key to understanding our own behavior, identity, and biological differences. DeWall is professor of psychology at Emory University and the director of the Living Links Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Atlanta, Georgia. He's published numerous books and articles on animal behavior. His latest book is called Different, Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist. Well, Franz DeWall, welcome to Life Examined. I'm happy to be here. Can you tell me when you first became interested in this idea of gender? I mean, I think it's something we think about a lot now, but you've been researching this for years. Well, I work always on social behavior and uh, animal intelligence, and I've noticed that each time for audiences, if I mention that there are sex differences, for example, that males are more violent or that females are more empathic in the primates, uh, people zoom in on that. They want to know more about it. Uh, they think, um, I, I think there's an immense curiosity in people about the biology of gender differences. They hear all the time that maybe the differences are not as great as we think, or maybe they're culturally constructed, and they want to hear from a biologist if, um, if that's correct. You know, they, mm. they have a, I think they're skeptical about that. So tell me how this began to play out in your research. How did you go about looking at this? Well, because I work on social behavior all the time, like dominance relationships, conflict resolution, bonding, sexuality, uh, automatically uh, sex differences are in there, uh, always, they're always in there. And for example, if you look at bonding, uh, males bond with males, females bond with females, there's a lot of that going on. And, and so then, then you wonder... Are these bonds different? Uh, do they have a different meaning to them? Or, or do they have maybe the same meaning to them? And so I'm interested in that kind of issues. Yeah. So why, why look at primates versus other animals? What's, what's the point of doing that? Well, humans are primates. So if, if you want to know more about human behavior, I think the first ones you look at are our closest relatives, which are chimpanzees and bonobos. Uh, and then you have a, a few more distant relatives, like the other primates. But but people often confuse, like the monkeys, you know, baboons and macaques and so on. They're actually quite a bit more distant from us. The, the closest are really chimps and bonobos. And, and the interesting part, of course, of chimps and bonobos is that these two are so different. So they're equally close to us, but chimps are quite violent and male-dominated and territorial. And, and bonobos are much friendlier, more peaceful, uh, female-dominated, uh, have a lot of sexual interactions. And so uh, we, we have sort of like the law and order primates on the one hand and the, and the hippies on the other hand. Mm. And uh, that's, that makes for a very interesting comparison. It also makes that nothing is simple. If you say male dominance is the natural order, for example then I say, well, you know, we have a close relative where that's not the case. And so, and so it complicates the, the picture, I think. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Can you can you tell us about your experiences working with both of these different primates? Yeah, you know, chimpanzees I've I've always worked with in my first book was chimpanzee politics, which was on alpha males and how they become alpha male. And uh, actually, my stories on alpha males influenced Washington because Newt Gingrich recommended my book to the Republicans at the time, and and the word alpha male came into fashion after that. Mm. And, and, and became simplified, I think, because uh, people reduced alpha male to a bully, basically, which is not really the way I used the term. And what is an alpha male? I mean, what did you find when you were researching that? Well, an alpha male is the top male. There's, there's only one alpha male. There's only one alpha female. People never talk about alpha females, but every primate group also has an alpha female. And uh, the alpha male is the top male and is much more than a bully. Uh, I have known males who are bullies, uh, and just as in humans, we have those dictator type males, you know. Um, but most of the alpha males that I've known are true leaders in the sense that they keep the peace, they protect the underdog, they protect a juvenile against an adult or a female against a male. And as a result of their activities, the group feels very secure and peaceful uh, and they can become immensely popular. So, so instead of being feared by everybody, they, they are loved and respected by everybody. So that's the alpha male side. And then the, the bonobo studies, I started much later in, in San Diego. The San Diego Zoo had, uh, was one of the few zoos that had bonobos. And uh, um, I wanted to know more about them. And so I studied them and found that all that sexual activity that they have uh, is not is not intended for reproduction. That's really social uh, social activity for them. They they resolve conflicts with sex and and and, that, and they are awfully peaceful. So they're very effective at doing so. Say more about the sexual element. I mean, is this uh, sex as pleasure with with a single partner with multiple? What, what do you mean by very active there? Yeah, it is um, the bonobo as a species has. Uh, among the primates, I think the largest clitoris. And uh, so females are very much into pleasure. But females also have a strong social bond and a sisterhood, which they need to have because they dominate the males. And so they, they don't dominate the males individually. They are smaller than males. They do it collectively, which means that they have to have a strong sisterhood. And they uh, maintain that sisterhood by grooming each other, sharing food, but also a lot of sex with each other. So, so there's a lot of female female sex going on in the bonobo. And I would say in bonobos, three-quarter of the sexual activity has nothing to do with reproduction. It is basically socially, uh, it's, it's basically to resolve conflicts and to foster bonds between them. And in that regard, they are quite different. That There's only one other species apart from humans, maybe, who do that. That's the dolphin. And the dolphin also, the females, have a very large clitoris. I don't think that's accidental that uh, pleasure drives a lot of their behavior, I think. So this is interesting. You're talking about in bonobos um, as just a way of being. There is, you know, what we'd think of as same-sex sexual relationships, and that's, that's just the way it is there. Yeah, homosexual activity is really not so unusual in the animal kingdom. It is the minority of cases in most species. In most species, there's more heterosexual than homosexual activity. In the bonobo, I would say you cannot say that because uh, I think bonobos are perfectly bisexual in the sense that it doesn't matter so much for them what the gender of their uh, partner is. And so they they don't make much of a distinction in that regard. Mm. And over in the chimpanzee camp, how, how does sex play out there? Well, in chimpanzees, it's uh, uh, more competitive. There's more competition over sex, especially among males. And uh, it's more limited. Uh, they, 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 when the females are fertile, uh, in that short period of time, there's an enormous amount of sexual activity going on. So it's not like they are shy about it or they don't do it. But um, the females are only fertile every six years or so. They have an interbirth interval you know, the, the, the babies remain dependent for a very long time in the chimpanzee. And so they have babies every six years or so, which means that the females are fertile only now and then. And they only then, during these periods, they have sexual activity. Whereas the bonobo, they, um, they have sexual activity throughout, actually. Mm. 
in the chimpanzees, is there also um, what we think of as, as, as homosexual activity, or is it more heterosexual? Yeah, that's less common. It, it certainly does happen in the chimpanzee. It happens in all the primates that there's homosexual activity. Uh, it's not unusual. But in the chimpanzee, that's more like a minority of cases, I would say. So, yeah, the, um, people often wonder if homosexual activity is natural. And if you look at the animal kingdom, if that's, if that's your measure, I think it's perfectly natural. Hmm. How do you make sense of what feels like almost too different archetypes or just two different examples of where humans could come from. I mean, these are really interesting and stark differences that you paint. Yeah, I think uh, humans descend from a common ancestor that we share with bonobos and chimps uh, who lived maybe six million years ago. That's the estimation. And that common ancestor, we don't know what kind of character it was. We don't know if it was bonobo-like or chimp-like or maybe human-like. We have no idea because... Uh, we don't. Ha- we've never found fossils of that uh, common ancestor. Mm. And uh, my guess is we have a little bit of both of the chimpanzee and the bonobo. We 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 have the male bonding of the chimpanzee. Chimpanzees' males are very competitive with each other, but they also are bonded and they groom each other and they play together and things like that. So uh, we have that side, and we have the female bonding of the bonobo, female solidarity and sisterhood clearly uh, present in the bonobo. And then we evolved for ourselves uniquely uh, the nuclear family, where male and female care for offspring together. In in chimpanzees and bonobos, uh, it's really a female job. The the males do very little in terms of carrying or feeding or no, they don't do much with the the offspring. So that's all females and humans develop nuclear families. So so that's that's quite different. Can you say a little bit more about friendship? I was curious in, about that. Um, what are the differences in friendship between these two species, or w- what can we learn from them? Well, friendships occur in, in all the primates, and, and sometimes they are intersexual so between a male and a female, uh, but very often they are uh, within the same gender. So, so male-male friendships, female-female friendships. They can be very long-lasting. They can be very influential. So, for example, in the wild, uh, male chimpanzees, they have good male friends. If, if one of these male friends dies or disappears, they, they're very upset and they, they're searching for them and they, uh, they become depressed. Uh, and the same thing with females. Uh, I've known female friendships that were very profound in chimpanzees. And, and if then, for example, one of these two females dies, it's not only that the other one uh, is depressed and looks for her, but she may also adopt the children of that other of her of her female friend, and and mm. that has happened in the wild, has happened in captivity. Uh, these adoptions happen. Uh, adoptions are so interesting because you know um, I describe in my book also how males may adopt orphans. So sometimes a a mother dies, and uh, all of a sudden there's an orphan, and then the males show a potential. Male chimpanzees show a potential that we rarely get to see. Is that they they have nurturing tendencies that we almost never get to see. So, so then a male adopts one of these orphans, not just for two days or so, but for five years sometimes. So, so they adopt an orphan and they become just as caring as a mother, showing that these male chimpanzees, sometimes it's even the alpha male, that these male chimpanzees who are so rough and, and violent and competitive, that they have a, a tender, uh, caring side to them. And I call that a potential. It's a caring potential that's very important I think in the present discussion over gender in human society, because I've seen people mock, for example, paternity leaves. Why do we need paternity leaves? Uh, maternity leaves are all we need. So, so sort of the attitude that man caring for children is not sort of a natural behavior. But I would say if you look at the other primates, you see that males have caring tendencies and capacities. And of course, since humans evolved the nuclear family, uh, our males even have more of that, I think, than chimp males or bonobo males. Now, this is really interesting to me because we, we often do paint this very simplistic notion of, of what, the, what the man or what maleness is. I think particularly, maybe less so now, although you bring up that really important point of you know, paternity leave, but there has been, I think, a very rigid sense of masculinity 
for decades. And I, I welcome any other ideas that you could bring to us about what you've observed in these primates. Yeah, the, the main point, uh, and that's not even about caring tendencies, is about dominance and leadership. Uh, because we, we often assume, and I often hear that, is that men will make better leaders because, of course, the natural order is that men dominate and uh, men will be better leaders than, than women. I think that the COVID crisis has shown us that uh, if you look at the male and female leaders in the world, um, I cannot say that the men have done better than the women in this regard. Um, and if you look at the other primates, uh, you always have a female hierarchy. You always have a top female, an alpha female, and, and they have leadership capacities plenty. And so I always make a distinction between uh, physical dominance and power. So, for example, in my previous book, I described Mama, the chimpanzee alpha female, who was for 40 years the alpha female of a large colony of chimpanzees. So she saw a lot of alpha males come and go, so to speak. And she was not physically dominant over the males. She could not beat up a male, so to speak. But she had a lot more power than most of the males. And, and there was no chance for a male to become the alpha male without her support. Mm. She was sort of the key to, uh, to becoming the top male. And so who's then the more powerful? She was clearly, if she would withdraw her support, that male would be gone, basically. So, so I always make that distinction. And there are plenty of female leaders in the primate groups. Uh, in bonobos, in addition, the alpha female is alpha over everyone, including the males. And so there is no lack of female leadership. And uh, I think if people study the other primates a bit more carefully, they will notice that that idea of the natural order uh, of men dominating women, so to speak, um, is, is a simplification, enormous simplification of what's going on, really. Mm, interesting. Yeah, you, you have these um, amazing just portraits of certain primates. You talk about Mr. Spickles and Mama again. Um, mm -hmm. could, could you say more about them? Well, Mr. Spickle's sort of interesting. This is macaques. These are monkeys. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, I was fascinated because I, I looked at this large monkey group of 100 monkeys. And Mr. Spickles was clearly bigger and alpha male and an older male. But I also noticed that he was sometimes challenged by younger males who would jump in front of him and, and stare at him. And he, he didn't know what to do with them because they were much faster and probably also stronger than he was. And each time that happened, the alpha female, her name was Orange, a, fa a fairly small female, she would walk up to him, to Spickles, and, and stand right next to him. That's all she did, she mm. just stand next to him. And that would solve the whole issue because the young males knew that they, you're not going to mess with the alpha female because the alpha female has a whole army of other females behind her so uh, they then gave up at that point. So, and, and, and again, I, I will ask the question, okay, Spickles was the alpha male and physically dominant uh, over everyone, so to speak. But who's then the more powerful? Is, is that maybe the alpha females? Maybe she was the more powerful of the whole set of monkeys. And so that's always what you need to ask. And if you look at these political structures, uh, you notice that nothing is simple. And, and it's unfortunate that we live with this heritage of a very old study of a hundred years ago where you know they had a lot of fighting baboons and it was concluded that male violence and male dominance is natural and that's how the primates live and and it has been popularized by many many authors and so we live with that heritage of our view of the primate world but it's not so simple yeah it, it sounds to me that really we have a lot of unhelpful studies or theories that we tend to still live with. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's many of these issues that, that have seeped into the, the public mind. Uh, for example, f female sexual passivity is another one. That, uh, and that's not just the primate studies that undermine that view. That's a Victorian view that Sex is for men, and, and women are sort of the recipients of it. <laughs> so, so the men have the sex drive, the women don't have a sex drive. Uh, and, and don't need the sex, don't need it. Um, and, and the same is true for, for animals. That's, that was the thinking in biology. And that was undermined massively, first by bird studies. So, so we got these bird studies 
where they found that um, if you look at songbirds with a nest with eggs, and you test these eggs, the DNA of these eggs for paternity, you find that there's quite a few eggs that are not fathered by the male of the pair. So, so it's called extra pair fertilizations. And uh, so the bird studies were the first ones to undermine this idea that that the males are in control of the sexuality of the couple. And so what they found is that the females are actually quite enterprising and sometimes seek copulations with males from the outside. Now, in the primates, we have now tons of evidence to, to say that female choice and female proactivity and sexual pleasure uh, is extremely important. And so that whole idea of the passive female is also... Uh, being abandoned at this moment. Mm. It seems to me that a lot of this stuff would have been skewed to support older ways of thinking, religious ways of thinking, political hierarchies, that we could find evidence to support, you know, patriarchal societies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We usually call it Victorian because it came out of that period. Even though Darwin himself he was a bit more open-minded. He, he gave us, for example, theories of sexual selection, which, which gave a major role to the female. Uh, so Darwin was more open-minded than most of his contemporaries in that regard. But still, the, the, the line of thinking also at that time was pretty sexist, I would say, and, and uh, especially with regard to mental capacities. Mm. So, the, so that... Uh, of course, men are smarter than women, that's what people would say, and, and they have... Male thinkers and philosophers have maintained that position for centuries, uh, even though now that boys and girls have identical education, all of these differences are sort of evaporating now. Yeah. Well, the debate over gender, I mean, has been really active in recent years. So based off your research and the things that you've told me, how do we begin to understand the difference between gender and sex and the problem with classifying uh, someone as one thing or the other? Help us understand this. Yeah, I think sex is, is largely binary, not, not completely. It may be 98% male and female. And that's the biological side. It's chromosomes, hormones, genitals, and so on. Um, Gender, I never divide into male and female. Gender is more masculine and feminine and everything in between. And so gender is a much more flexible concept because it's more culturally constructed. I do think it relates also to other primates because, for example, the chimpanzee is adult when he's 16. So there's an enormous learning period. And so their, their life is also influenced by the environment and by uh, culture and by uh, learning from others. So I think the gender concept can be applied to other, other animals. And, and I argue in my book that there's a lot of gender diversity also found in other primates. There are individuals who don't fit the mold so clearly. Oh. So there are, there are females who act more like males. And there are males who act more like females. And so that's it. And, and you have the sexual orientation that may vary from one individual to the other. So, for example, I describe uh, in my book Donna, a chimpanzee female who uh, grew up very early already. She, she was acting more like a young male. And then when she grew up, she, she started to look like a male and she associated with males and she got along very well with the males. And so um, I, I cannot ask her her, her identity, but um, who knows, she may have identified as a, as a male. And so that same gender diversity that we see in human society, we can see that echoed in primate societies and, and what I find most interesting about it is, is that the primates have no trouble with it. I've never, Donna was extremely well integrated in her group. I've never noticed that they make a problem about it. So, so that's, that's maybe uniquely human, is that we, we are upset by these categories that we create. And, and if you fall outside of the boxes, um, we don't accept you necessarily. Mm. What do you hope this book will do in terms of helping us understand this question of gender? Well, I, I think what I want to achieve is that people don't look at gender as some sort of category isolated from biology. I don't think that's a possibility for mm. the human species to, to say this is purely cultural, these, these sex differences, is purely socialization. There, there is nothing pure. 
about our behavior in terms of either biology or culture. It's always both. And so by comparing us with the other primates, I'm making the point that, yes, there are certain biological uh, inclinations that we have and that we see reflected in the sex differences and the gender differences. Uh, it's all connected with what the other primates do and all connected to our biology. Um, and, and I hope to also increase the understanding that gender diversity is not something that we sort of invented or that is superficial. I think it's, it's inherently present in all the primates. Mm. I'm curious how you've seen this play out in your own personal life growing up uh, in a family of five males in the Netherlands, I, I believe married then to a French woman. I mean, how, how have mm -hmm. these questions resonated in your own life? Well, I'm from a family of six boys, six. and so, and so with my father, then it is uh, seven men and one woman in the family, and uh, maybe my curiosity about gender was created by being in that environment. I also went to a boys' school and so on when I was young, so I, so I was curious about gender, and when I was a student, I I joined even a feminist movement for for a year or so until they turned quite um, uh, negative against men. Um, but, but I was always interested in the gender issues, uh, and that was before I was studying animal behavior. So um, um, the animal behavior studies only reinforced my idea that that's an important issue to, uh, to investigate. Mm. Did you find any interesting uh, just dynamics uh, among the seven men? <laughs> well, well, for one thing, when people say that... that men don't get because sometimes in psychology people have a negative opinion about male male relations mm. and they say men don't really get along they don't really bond bonding is for women men are more competitive and i always have to laugh because yes men are competitive and boys are competitive but that doesn't mean they don't get along and they don't bond with each other i think that combination of rivalry and friendship is very typical of males uh, and males don't make a lot of trouble about that. Um, Where do you see all of this debate going politically? Um, you know, there, there's so many questions right now about folks that, that call themselves gender neutral or, or removing mm -hmm. categories of male, female, or big fights over pronouns like they. How, how do you now come down on some of this stuff? Well, you know, s sometimes I feel that gender inequality which is clearly present in society, and, and people complain about it, of course, um, that we're focusing on the wrong side of the two words, gender inequality. The problem is not with gender. The problem is with the inequality and the injustice of it. Uh, so we focus then on gender. We say, let's, let's remove gender and reduce it or be gender neutral, and that will solve the issues. I think that's a focus on the wrong problem. The problem is not that we have two genders or more genders and, and, and a multiple, multiple source of behavior around. The problem is that we translate that in inequality and injustice, and that's where we need to focus. So, so for, for me, it's fine if people want to raise their children gender neutral. Uh, I'm not sure that that will be, in the end, successful because the children will reach puberty and will have sexual interest at some point, and sexual interests are almost always gendered. But um, it's fine to try that, but that's, I think it's a focus on the wrong side of the problem. Can you say more about how you think some of this needs to be addressed? Well, I think you need to look at gender inequality. and, and this, So look at um, why do we uh, have a society that values the work of women less than the work of men? Mm. Uh, why do we have an economy that puts very little value on uh, household work and, and child rearing? Uh, so why have the economists decided that that's not part of the economy and that the economy is only what we do publicly outside of the home? So I, I have questions about it, but I'm a biologist. I don't know why the economy has decided to be organized that way, but um, I think that's harmful to... Uh, to one gender more than the other. I've been speaking with Franz de Waal, professor of psychology at, at Emory University and director of the Living Link Center at the Yerkes Primate Center in Atlanta, Georgia. His new book is called Different, Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist. Franz, thank you so much. This was really interesting. You're welcome. When we come back, are male and female brains biologically different? We'll be back with professor of neuroscience, Dr. Lise Elliott, after this short break. 
And just a quick minute to say thank you to all of you for sharing photos of your canine loves, including Lisa, Vicky, Alice, Marissa, Mandy, Yvette, and Judy. Those four beagles are awesome. Also, Matthew, John, Scooby, Hamilton lives on. Right on. Well, thank you, everybody. And uh, you can find the link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Franz DeWall, professor of psychology at Emory University, talk about how gender roles are impacted and defined by society and culture. But are there reliable sex differences between the male and female brain? Dr. Lise Elliott researches brain and gender development, especially the role of neuroplasticity in shaping behavior. Elliot is professor of neuroscience at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and author of two books called What's Going On in There? How the Brain and Mind Develop in the First Five Years of Life and Pink Brain, Blue Brain, How Small Differences Grow into Troublesome Gaps. Lisa Elliott, welcome to Life Examined. Good to talk to you, Jonathan. I want to start with some of the old science that looked at the brain or the ways in which men and women learn I know that you've now taken more of a critical eye at some of that stuff and and how some of those studies were undertaken. Yeah, well, psychologists have been studying for, you know, at least 50 years um, about gender differences and and, um, kind of clocking all the different uh, statistically significant ways in which men and women score differently on, say, personality tests or cognitive tests or emotional tests. But the problem is those uh, get extrapolated into pop culture and and just turned into kind of rules of what men are like and what women are like. And for my field, which is neuroscience, um, the extrapolation has been really pretty horrible. Um, I got into this because I was interested in answering how different are boys and girls' brains. I'd, I'd already written one book for parents on brain development that explored nature and nurture. And um, this really comes comes to a head, of course, in trying to understand boys and girls. We, we assume some of it's nature and, and some of it's nurture. Um, but the brain science where uh, people were trying to explain why does my son like trucks and my, girl, my daughter like dolls uh, was really pretty silly. They would take a very small MRI study and uh, that found some statistically significant difference in some brain area and try to weave a big story around why boys like motion and girls like faces, for example. And uh, it just um, turned out when I tried to really um, assess the entire scientific literature, the entire brain imaging literature, most of these findings didn't hold up. So um, with with uh, a bunch of colleagues, I published a paper in 2021 that uh, assimilated all this data across about 30 years and finds very, very few reliable sex differences in the brain um, once you get beyond the fact that men have about 10% larger brains than women. Right. So in general, though, I mean, you've made the very important point that when you just look at the different pieces of the brain and how it's assembled, there there is no such thing really as a male or female brain. Oh, absolutely not. And I use the analogy to other organs in our body. I mean, the brain is an internal organ like your liver or your kidney or your spleen or your ovaries. But unlike ovaries and testes, which are truly what we call dimorphic, two different shapes in males versus females, our brain is much more like our kidney or our heart or our liver, which fortunately can be transplanted between men and women quite successfully. These really are unisex organs. Um, and, uh, you know, I think they, they grow to be different uh, functionally. We really don't even know structurally, you know, if there's a basis for that, if it's just kind of a software difference uh, as boys and girls differentiate into their 
into their behavioral differences. Yeah, and I, I think some people may may jump at something you said a second ago, which is that the male brain is was it ten percent bigger or something. Does that actually matter? Does it does size have anything to do with intelligence or learning? Well, the difference in size between men and women is is roughly proportional to the difference in our height and our weight. Or uh, probably what's more important is the um, fat-free mass of your body, the muscles. Um, and other organs are innervated by a nervous system. And so the more, you know, muscle mass you have, the bigger your nervous system has to be. And, and so men obviously have more muscle mass than women. And that easily accounts for the 10%. It may not even fully account for the 10% difference, meaning women may have proportionally larger brains than men if we normalize to muscle mass. Um, so it depends on what you choose, whether it's height, weight, Etc. So to be clear, I mean, when the brain is formed, there, you know, there's no physiological difference between men and women. And so how do we then begin to understand these differences in gender, how, uh, you know, a boy or a girl develops? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say that there's absolutely no uh, sex differences in the brain. I mean, we do know males and females have slightly different chromosomes, about, um, I think, 0.2% of our genes that are different, meaning 99.8% of the same. But those, uh, the different genes are um, on the male Y chromosome, which trigger the development of the testes, which happens quite early in, in utero in the first trimester. And once the testes form, they produce testosterone. So there's been a lot of attention to what the effect of prenatal testosterone might be on uh, the male brain. I mean, we're all exposed to testosterone, but the levels are 10 to 20 times higher in male fetuses. And um, here, there, there is not yet any clear findings um, at the brain level, but at the behavior level, we do think um, a few ba- behaviors are maybe, maybe subtly shifted by prenatal testosterone. Testosterone, and then in the female genome, I'm the presence of different hormones as well. I mean, do those play a factor in what could be, you said, subtle differences? They certainly could play a factor. And here we've got lots and lots and lots of research that has attempted to um, link the levels of prenatal testosterone to um, behaviors in boys and girls. I focus on prenatal testosterone. um, The hormone levels between males and females differ in two phases of life, one before birth. So as I said, once the testes form in a male fetus, there's um, higher levels of testosterone. But interestingly, after birth, there's really no difference between boys and girls um, from the neonatal period all the way until the onset of puberty. So, you know, when you see your sons wrestling on the carpet, um, you, you can't just shout out and blame the testosterone. If It's possible it was the testosterone before birth, but eight-year-old boys and girls really don't have differences at that level. So we focus on prenatal testosterone or pubertal testosterone. So I think the, the big question then looming is the role of culture here. If, if we know that there are some subtle differences, um, it may not explain why we have developed in a world in which there are these certain archetypes of a male and female. So talk about the role of culture and the world in which you're brought into and how that impacts you. Well, there's plenty of evidence that um, culture has gender expectations, that um, we have rules for how boys are supposed to be and how girls are supposed to be. These are mostly unwritten rules in in this country. There are certainly many places in the world in which they are written laws about male and female roles and behavior. Uh, But kids pick this up quite, quite early. So, you know, the pushback against the cultural rearing of gender uh, came from a generation of parents, now sort of the age of grandparents, who supposedly tried convince themselves, we tried, we raised our child uh, gender neutral, you know, we gave our children all the same toys and uh, same opportunities, and yet they turned out so different. But this is really kind of a fallacy. It's, it's, 
pretty much impossible to to treat um, males and females the same, just because we have so much experience with males and females and different expectations for what how they're going to emote and what language they're going to use. Um, so kids figure this out super, super early. And um, by the time they're three, most children have already identified with a gender. And that becomes a really important crystallizing force for the way that they see the world around them and they think about themselves. And kids uh, have a real hard time thinking in shades of, j- of gray. They are um, pretty concrete. So you're either a boy or, you're, or a girl. And everything associated with boy is what makes you a boy. So if you wear a hair ribbon, you can't be a boy. You must be a girl. Um, it's, it's, very, it's very literal. And that, that helps them sort their world and helps them um, you know, make decisions about who do I play with and what toys are appropriate for me. Um, there's a famous experiment where children were shown toys um, in non-traditional colors like a, a pink water pistol or a, a black teapot. And um, all these kids, um, four or five-year-olds, identified the pink gun was for girls and the black teapot was for boys, even though, of course, um, that's the reverse stereotype. So they, they know these rules and they learn them well, but there's nothing hardwired or innate about pink versus black. This is fascinating to me. I mean, you know, at least... I see this a lot where I live on the West Coast and, you know, a very kind of progressive neighborhoods where I have lots of friends with young kids and the kids are given gender neutral names. The parents are doing everything they can to raise the kids in gender neutral households. And, um, you know, oftentimes what I've noticed and they've noticed is exactly what you talk about, that, you know, the boy will still gravitate to the truck and the, the girl will dravi- gravitate towards the pink princess outfit. And they can't understand why when they're doing everything they can. So I guess it just really brings up this question to me of, can you actually really do this? Can you raise a child in a gender neutral household, even when you're doing everything you can to try and create that environment? Well, I mean, none of us is an island, you know. Um, in principle, you could if you had no media, if you had no preschool, if you had no traditional grandparents, um, but it just doesn't exist. Uh, you know, gender is is profoundly pervasive in our in our culture. It's it's you know, everything has a gender. Careers have a gender. Uh, subjects in school have a gender. Sports have a gender. You know, even if it's not explicit. Um, so kids are so smart and they figure this out and they want to, you know, growing up is all a process of self-identity, discovering who you are. Gender is the first way that we sort the world. And so they will push back. Um, I mean, I'm not saying there, you know, I, I didn't really have a chance to talk about um, the, the toy choice and, and the hormones and so on. There certainly is this bias and um you know, it, it seems that um, boys or people exposed to testosterone, even even girls who are exposed to very very high levels of tos- testosterone, uh, do tend more towards to traditional boy playthings like trucks and balls and and um, action figures, um, and those with lower testosterone more towards girl things. So there may be you know some tilting there, and then once kids figure out there's two categories, it becomes kind of a, a, a positive feedback loop where they discover they discover they're on team pink or they discover they're on team blue and it becomes very important for their identity to match all the features of that. I want to continue this idea of children thinking in, in very simplistic and important ways. You talked about how, you know, a young girl, it's important for her to think of herself as a girl because she's shaping her identity and a young boy doing the same thing. And that it's hard for young, young kids to think in nuance of like, maybe I'm both a boy and a girl. But we do now know that at a certain point, um, kids begin to question their gender. And this is, I think, the big conversation happening around us right now in our world is that that's a real thing as well. So when does that begin to change? Do we know when uh, one begins to question their gender or maybe make changes in how they think of themselves? 
Yeah, that, that is a, a really interesting point and, and something that we're just new to thinking about because until pretty recently, the notion was that um, gender incongruent children or those whose um, gender uh, identity doesn't match the one assigned at birth, that they were extremely rare. It was uh, honestly, when I started my research on this topic, which wasn't that long ago, the number was said to be one in 10,000 children. Well, now we all know many, many more kids. I mean, there's be hard to find a, a kindergarten or preschool where there isn't at least one child who seems to be gender nonconforming. Um, and that probably is that the, the environment is getting more permissive, more tolerant of, of a wider range of gender expression. So when you talked about the neighborhoods where it didn't seem to make a difference that parents were uh, bending over backwards to create a gender neutral environment, I would say on the contrary. Um, I think we are seeing that children are, are freer to uh, express their, their true selves and not necessarily be boxed in to a gender label. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, I already explained that children gender identify around three years of age, and it is a very binary understanding at that age because kids are very literal. Um, and they also don't have what we call, uh, what we know as gender constancy. So they, they, um, they don't understand necessarily that they will always have the same gender. But that happens uh, uh, later, like about six or seven years of age, where they realize uh, not only they have a gender, but, you know, unless you, we step in and do major medical interventions, um, they will always have that gender. Um, and that is the age really when I think they do start to, um, their eyes open up about uh, the, the deeper complexity of it. And that, okay, well, I'm a boy, but I may not necessarily match all of these features. And, uh, and, and that's where their understanding becomes more nuanced. And they, they may or may not then feel that they are non-binary or, um, you know, kind of reject gender or identify as transgender. Mm. How do you feel about where at least some pockets of this country are going in terms of, of greater acceptance of, of gender fluidity, um, of, of rules that are supporting that? Um, what, what's your take on the kind of larger arguments happening around us right now? Well, I, I think that gender is clearly a human construct. Um, uh, other animals don't have gender. They, they certainly have sex. Um, but we have pronouns and language and hairstyles and social roles and expectations that are um, that are very embedded into our culture, um, and it's always been binary. But if we if we were to break that down and to say, well, you know, maybe this thing we're calling gender doesn't necessarily fit in two boxes, and um, that can give individuals a little more freedom to be their authentic selves. So I, I think it's a healthy advance overall, but we are obviously in a very, very fraught time because that notion certainly conflicts with many religious views um, and uh, you know, m many of our institutions. Um, so I, I see this as, uh, as one of many uh, struggles of identity that um, is probably gonna take some years to work out. But overall, I think it's a psychologically healthy advance. Do you think there are any benefits to living in a gendered world? Well, uh, it certainly clarifies things and um, creates less ambiguity about one's role. I mean, just like uh, religious gi religions give us structure, right? And have rules that can um, give, give one you know, structure to their lives and maybe uh, a sense of purpose. Um, I think, you know, gender roles can do that as well. Um, so um, I wouldn't say they're, they're necessarily bad. I think it's just when they, um, when they constrain one where you feel like you can't do something because of, of your gender role. But yeah, it, it's, a really, it's a really tough notion. Um, we have all kinds of social categories and um, for gender, it, at least in principle, 
Um, there shouldn't be one gender that's more valuable than another. We know other social categories where that's not the case, where certain groups have higher social value than others. Um, but the truth of it is, actually, around the world, for the most part, women do have a lower, a lower social value. We do have something of a caste system when it comes to gender. And in that sense, I think it can can be harmful. And I think it explains why women are more um, willing to challenge the gender binary than um, than often, at least in my experience, than men are. Well, finally, I, I wonder if there's anything that you'd like to add to this conversation or something that you think we missed or that'd be important for our listeners to know about your work or this ongoing research into gender. Well, I think that when, um, I like to, th- I like to talk about the plasticity of gender. I mean, that, that's how I got into this field. Um, I study neuroplasticity, how the brain changes as a result of experience. And I think that um, if you look at the advance of girls and women just over my lifetime, um, it really is proof positive of neuroplasticity. You know, there's many women doing many things now that we honestly didn't think they could do 50 years ago. Uh, and that's just such a short period of time. And I think that does demonstrate the plasticity of gender roles, the, the, the plasticity of neural circuits to do things that you might not associate with with female gender, like, you know, leadership and, you know, extreme athletic competition, boxing, for example. Um, but we haven't given boys and men the same latitude. And there's there's a lot of things that uh, that men and boys might find very fulfilling that I think they they just don't feel as free or they feel they would lose status if they were to to express more of the feminine side of their existence. So I think that that's the remaining hurdle. We've done a good job for women. There's more to do. But I think going forward, it's uh, giving giving boys and men more more freedom. I've been speaking with Lise Elliott, professor of neuroscience at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine. Thank you so much for the time. This was really interesting. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been fun to talk to you. All right, that's all we got for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And once again, we'd love for you to join our new Life Examined Facebook group. It's an opportunity for us to create a community and talk about a lot of these big issues together. We love hearing from you and also watching the folks on the group interact with each other. You can find the group by going to kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. Or if you're in Facebook, just search for KCRW Life Examined. Once again, we love growing the community and would love to see you in there. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us on Life Examined. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you soon.